0: them. Hi, how are you?
1: I'm good. How are you, Jessica?
0: Good, good. Thanks for having me on again. Really appreciate it and excited to do this periodically.
1: Yeah, definitely. And since we have four series, uh, I mean, this is a series with four different parts. The last part is the Q&A section where we probably invite some people in to ask questions uh, based on the three segments. So, today, we're going to talk about COVID impact and we have a list of things that you can go through but from the VC perspective things you are um, in uh, like working in that uh, environment at this time I think we very it'd be very interesting for people to to know how that is changing the landscape of that field so just please go ahead I think we have a series of things we can talk about but I'll give yeah. you the
0: Definitely, that sounds perfect. Um, So as mentioned, um, obviously I'm pretty close to what's going on in the early stage side of the private markets, um, specifically kind of seed, um, given our investment focus in seed and then also um, somewhat the series A and series B as well, given a lot of our um, even relatively recent investments have raised in those stages recently or are planning to in the near future. Um, so I guess I'll dive right into it and talk first. Um, yeah. It's a nice segue on the difference um, between the impact of COVID on seed slash pre-seed versus series A slash B companies. Mm-hmm. So obviously a lot of people outside of venture might think that venture is just sort of one asset class. Um, yeah. But in many ways, obviously it is quite different from growth equity or private equity and certainly from public markets um, alternatives. asset classes um, beyond those etc but um, even within venture there's quite a lot of distinctions and specifically i'd say the divide is really Um, Kind of between, so you have the divide, and on one side you have pre seed and seed, and the other side you have series A and B. Um, And obviously, this isn't like a holding fast rule, but just sort of like an observational um, kind of characterization. And so, essentially, what I mean by that is that um, companies that are at the seed or Pre-seed stage, or generally pre-product market fit, mm-hmm. um, and product market fit is like this really elusive term. I think we might have touched upon it briefly last time, but essentially yeah. it's like building something that a huge market uh, really wants and mm-hmm. wants enough to pay for it. You know, a viable price to make your unit economics. your broader business model and your broader business makes sense. Um, And it sounds simple and it sounds easy because you know it sounds like you could just go and ask people like what they want and then create it but it's actually quite hard um, given that sometimes people don't know what they want or maybe you're selling into like a complex organization and some people there need it but then the decision maker doesn't need it or doesn't want it or won't pay for it or uh, maybe they'd rather build it in-house or like they would like it in theory but there's security concerns or budget concerns slash constraints, or competitors that are quite similar, or even competitors from adjacent markets moving in. And so basically product market fit is quite hard to find. Um, And so it actually is a big focus of the time for pre-seed and seed stage companies. And typically a series A investor, obviously there's many different funds that do series A investments, um, and they'll have slightly different criteria and styles of investing, but generally they are looking for certain revenue metrics and depends on the sector, but they have general targets or ranges for where you need to be as a startup in terms of revenue um, or in terms of retention or things like that to sort of show um, there isn't like a, you know, hard and fast rule around product market fit. It's not just like, you know, you for sure have it or you for sure don't, but there are sort of ways in which to kind of suss that out. And so um, people usually, people as in series A investors usually rely on um, metrics around, Um, ARR, Annual Recurring Revenue, sometimes monthly recurring revenue, that's MRR, retention, cohort graphs, um, customer references, things like that, um, but essentially by the Series A point you kind of need to have found product market fit and the main reason for that, it's not just arbitrary, um, but the main reason for that is that Series A rounds are usually quite massive, they're getting more and more massive over time and the markets have been quite frothy, but um, this is sort of this massive infusion of capital, like um, Sandbox VR for example raised a $62 million Series A from Andreessen Horowitz um, I think in 2019. Um, and that's not sixty-two valuation. That sixty-two million dollars went into this company um, in the Series A. That's how much money they raised. Um, I don't remember the valuation, but obviously it was much larger than that. And so, tons of money. And if you don't yet have a product that the market needs, um, that money is great to have for fun. But definitely, you know, wouldn't be put to good work um, in terms of your sales and your product. And so. That's why Series A investors really want to make sure that companies um, have found product market fit before they put in larger checks. Seed stage investors are usually like a million or a couple million dollars in terms of how much these companies are raising, and subsequently how much the investors are putting in. And so, obviously, it's a lot of money, but it's very small relative to sixty-two million, for example. And so it's lower stakes and um, you know they're open to supporting the founder through the process of finding product market fit and product market fit is a little bit elusive as well because you know let's say you have an insight about the customer um, a new insight that you just found um, and then you change the product subsequently but as a result your market changes as well So it's kind of the seesaw effect um, where your product changes and your market changes and your product changes. You sort of have to find that great balance and sometimes like Epic Games, which is the company that made Fortnite. um, They, you know, obviously very famous for Fortnite and they didn't go bankrupt, um, obviously, because they're they're still in existence, but for around 10 or 12 years um, before creating Fortnite they were just kind of like hobbling along and and I'm sure that a decent company and I'm not doing it justice but they definitely didn't create a hit like Fortnite until they created Fortnite and so it can take a very long time but some companies find it instantly so it's a whole kind of wide spectrum of possibilities but essentially seed and pre-seed companies have not yet found product market fit and then Series A and Series B companies um, and beyond generally have Um, and so the period of covid um, so usually it's not so great if you haven't done product market fit yeah. because obviously that's important to do and challenge um, but actually kind of in this current environment where there's not as much capital and um, also supply chains are disrupted everything's really shut down as we all know it's actually a good time for pre-seed and seed companies to really Kind of eliminate all distractions and they probably won't have any since, you know, there's no way to even leave their homes or wherever they're sheltering in place um, and really kind of focus on this internal work and all the work around finding product market fit. Like, yes, you know, it, it's, it's money because you need to, um, you know, spend your time. Maybe you need to like get a freelance designer or something, but it's all largely internal work. You're not mass producing something or, um, you know, using a ton of server space or whatever it might be. Um, um, you know, think about these costs for both enterprise and consumer companies, they're not usually incurring those and they're not actually creating the product. They're not actually servicing the customers. It's mostly internal work. Um, and so usually, you know, people are running around to events and like uh, meetings and things like that. But now people really aren't doing that. And so I think seed and pre-seed uh, founders can really take advantage of this time to be able to Focus um, on um, focus on finding their product market fit, and so I think it's actually a, you know obviously it's awful what's going on, but I think as a silver lining, um, the founders can take the time to be able to focus on finding product market fit. Um, And then I think not that, you know, series A and series B companies are in trouble, but I think they're even maybe a little bit more impacted if they haven't, um, if they were just about to raise or they just sort of, I mean, nobody could have planned for this, but if they, um, you know, had some bad luck, I guess, in terms of how hard they were impacted, because these are the companies that have just gotten the capital, have found the product market fit and are just ready to go once they, all the capital and the supply chains in place and obviously um you know the capital isn't really there and the supply chains are mostly shut down or disrupted in some meaningful way and so i think um actually for pre-seed and seed um founders you know sort of take the opportunity and then series a series b founders kind of are more hard hit um then obviously can sort of find more Creative ways to circumvent those challenges. Um, so then, a few things on the problems in COVID. So obviously, um, you know, again, super terrible what is going on. But I think there will be some interesting opportunities that arise from this. I'm um, actually going to write an article on this um, sort of once things sort of settle down and, and have some more time to kind of reflect. But um, just to kind of name a few across different categories. So yes. I'll name one in social, um, one in enterprise, and then one in sort of more general. Platform marketplace. Um, so, specifically in social, I think what's quite interesting is that um, previously there's been, um, you know, obviously the name, the I mean, the main two um, purchasing um, categories in the US economy, and I imagine many other economies as well, um, is homes and cars. Um, and previously people have been very uncomfortable with the idea of buying cars or homes without seeing them. Um, understandably, these are, you know, big ticket items and you want to see them and do will be spending tons of time in them um, for hopefully years to come. And so um, I think that's sort of been a big area of friction um, that's been somewhat unavoidable for obvious reasons. But I think now um, obviously people will um, sort of hold back from buying homes if they can or hold back from buying cars if they can. But obviously, that's not the case for all people. I'm sure there are, you know, exceptions and unique circumstances in our big world. And so, um, I think that there will be new use cases for traditionally pure social platforms like TikTok, for example, which you know we all know is like the fun video making and kind of platform for like friends and for celebrities and just for fun um but then these social platforms um are actually you know well a they're already kind of on the phones of lots of people being used people know how to use them they're comfortable using them they're open to downloading it if they haven't already um and um also the kind of the structure of it is sort of to be able to, you know, showcase like in, in most use cases currently someone's face or their body or what they're doing. But then they could actually also be applied to seeing not just a photo, but like a really customized um 3D, 360 degree view of a car or of a home. And then even, you know, look at Zillow, um, obviously a big sort of home listing place. Um, people are able to go on there and see virtual house tours wasn't really used before because people would always prefer to see it in person or just look at photos um, But then it's actually their use of just shooting through the roof so i think that's sort of a really interesting kind of um, potential opportunity of applying um existing social platforms to new use cases and helping reduce friction in the largest ticket item purchases in u.s and really global economies so i think um that'll kind of move us more as a society to e-commerce not just in the traditional way of like you know buying some makeup or buying um, you know some hair products or something but really kind of end-to-end e-commerce and really going from offline to online and in shopping habits as well Um, and I think that's quite interesting and sort of like social space, obviously being in enterprise as well and I think I'll just note one more in the social space I think what's interesting is um, previously you know we all had identities offline as well in terms of like you know how we looked or like you know showing our faces at conferences or um you know speaking to people things like that then i think obviously now nobody's doing that um and so people um we all all, always had an online presence through you know linkedin facebook instagram things like that but i think um that now people are being more conscious of their online identity because it really is the only identity they have or you know obviously whoever they're quarantined with and so um i think people are using creative tools that were traditionally kind of more in the enterprise space. You think of Notion, they just raised a $50 million round from index ventures um, Mm -hmm. shortly before right around when all this quarantine stuff hit. Um, And Notion was traditionally used by teams or by companies to be able to collaborate better. So it's very much an enterprise tool. And that's sort of the use case that the founders initially set out to tackle with their product. Um, But then now, as I'm sure many of you have seen, a lot of my friends I know, who you know aren't even tech savvy um are making notion websites for themselves or for their blogs or just like for reading recommendations since everybody's reading a bunch of books now that we have a bit more time at home and so i think people are really trying to curate their online identities and i think different platforms either new ones just spring up that are specifically targeted at that or new use cases from um you know enterprise previously traditionally enterprise products like notion moving into the space i think will be really interesting. So kind of similar to um, the previous point on social platforms of like, um, I guess sort of the, the opposite in some ways where, you know, you have a pure consumer thing, TikTok moving into like um, an enterprise use case of, you know, working for car companies or working for, um, you know, Zillow or something like that. And then here you sort of have things moving the opposite way where you have, um, you know, an enterprise like, you know, tool like Notion moving into your personal use case. Cases. So um, similar, but you know, opposite direction. Yeah. Um, so on the enterprise, well, your enterprise front, I think what's really interesting here is that, you know, we've heard so much um, about, um, we've heard so much about um, like telehealth rising yeah. through all of this. We've heard so much about people wanting to do fitness at home. We also have heard about all the debates um, <laughs> around, um, you know, whether game. we've heard, you know, Singapore, talk- right um these companies are really um, top down in terms of their government um, for for better words obviously very different from the US um, but you know not the point there the point is that there's debates around whether or not this kind of top-down tracking of our phones or other devices is helpful in sort of mapping out the spread of COVID and thereby preventing the spread of COVID. Um, and so I think all these things, you know, are are very commonly talked about and they seem disparate. You know, what is top-down tracking have to do with telehealth have to do with you know, fitness or like VR games at home. But I think what they have in common is that they're all collecting some type of personal biometric data and I think that um, you know for better or worse and we could debate endlessly about whether or not this data should be collected but the fact of the matter is that it is and it's out there um, and then there's nothing much we can do about it either way and so I think what will be interesting is like the different use cases that um, we will have or you know companies will be able to capitalize on with this huge sea and gold mine in some ways of biometric data and so I think there will be opportunities around leveraging this and hopefully good ways, as well as helping to manage it, since it obviously is quite sensitive um, Mm -hmm. in many ways. And I think something else that's quite interesting too, is that um, suddenly you have, um, you know, a lot of, um, I think before you, you had a lot of tools, obviously, Zoom, um, but these tools are all just for a single use case. So video chat, and then you have Slack for messaging people. Mm Then you have, you know, this tool for something else. These are kind of point, problems and point use cases um, and point products as well Um, but I think and and that was you know fitting because you only needed these products for these specific use cases but I Mm -hmm. think what's really interesting is now you know we work um, at home and it's you know every day throughout the day so obviously we need to video call people inside and outside of our companies we obviously need to communicate with people through Slack who we work with Um, but also we need to we sort of miss that like water cooler talk I saw a website and that was, I think, I don't want to go back link, but it was like The Sound of Colleagues or something. And it's literally mm. a website that plays like the sound of like just people, I think just like random people, like talking. A lot of people do when they're just sitting in their bedroom or their like home office or whatever, and they feel quite lonely because they, even if they weren't like best friends with their coworkers, they do mm. this, you know, having other people there. Um, you know obviously very natural human instinct and so i think what's really interesting is that um you know now we have these really we already have these really great point solutions again zoom slack etc to solve these specific problems but how do you kind of um how do you kind of Um, preserve and like the water cooler talk and how do you preserve the culture of the company um, and things like that and so I think that'll be quite fascinating to see Um, and then I think kind of on the non-work front so that's also in the work front but on the non-work front um, so I think what's really interesting is um, you know before you you were just at home and like from you know nine to eight to nine or something when you were just waking up and getting ready to go to work and then later on at night from like you know, 6.30 to whenever you go to bed. Um, and so you were only at home for specific um, use cases, if you will, um, to, to kind of characterize that with more business language um, and at very predictable hours of the day and you knew you probably had a routine and you knew, you know, in the morning I'd do A C then at night I'd do, you know, DEF. And so I think um, now when we're at home all the time um, for like doing a million um, different things, um, we're able to, um kind of explore more iot i think smart homes all this stuff it's been kind of buzzwords for a while um and i think that now we'll sort of potentially see more of that take off because people are looking for more synchronized experiences so just like at work they're not just looking for these disparate disaggregated point solutions they're looking for something tied all together with sort of the human emotional aspect and i think um, similarly, um, at home, people are looking for things to sort of be tied together as well. And that's sort of what connected devices, IoT, smart homes really does. I think there's going to be opportunities and synchronized experiences. Um, and then, sort of on the last category yeah, on the last category of platform and marketing places so i think what's really interesting is overall you see this trend you know uber drivers and restaurant waiters and waitresses becoming amazon workers when they're you know uber and restaurant jobs are no longer um you know the safest or you know in restaurants the case of restaurants just entirely closed and then you also saw lots of startups um laying off like 40 percent or even more of their workforce mm-hmm. because of not being able to meet payroll or certain jobs are no longer super relevant um, when you can't do things in person. And then a lot of these startup employees went and joined large corporations. Um, You know, I think I read somewhere like, I forgot if it was was Gucci or something, but some kind of like Mm -hmm. luxury manufacturer pivoted to make masks. And that's quite common for manufacturers across the board. Um, You know, GM, et cetera, is making ventilators. Um, And then there's also like all kinds of sites online kind of aggregating Supply for PPE um, and also for laid-off workers looking for jobs, um, things like that. And so I think it's really interesting, kind of how. Uh, and before we were like, okay, this is an Uber driver. This is Amazon market, where you were like, this is a you know Gucci manufacturer, mask manufacturer. That's different. Um, we're able to pivot very easily as a society and we're so much um, of our response to COVID that could have been um better. I'll turn off my video as well it's helpful for the internet connection. Yeah. Um yeah. yeah but I think kind of what we were able to see is that you know we were able to pivot super well You know, all things considered, obviously, you know, um, not as well as we would have liked. Um, And so I think that there's sort of this opportunity, and this is quite broad, but around smarter centralization. There's like a million different sites on where you can get PPE. How can we sort of aggregate all of the resources, not in, obviously, a human in the loop, but in a really automated, really intelligent way that's really searchable and really user-friendly. Similarly, how can we aggregate all of the different companies that are hiring? how can we aggregate all of the different um, workers who are laid off and looking for jobs how can we aggregate all the different manufacturing facilities that could either make masks or make ventilators obviously two different types of manufacturing facilities. how can we aggregate all the gig workers who are looking for employment um, things like that and so I think how can we sort of create um, marketplaces or platforms um, even after COVID that sort of help us pivot better and help us better utilize our resources so that nothing is staying idle when it could potentially be repurposed and so i think that's quite interesting as well um, and then the next point on um companies combating covid so i think i wanted yeah. to just highlight some interesting things that um our companies are, are doing and so um obviously sort of a bias to my portfolio given sort of that i know that one better than um, you know most other other companies out there
1: exactly. but a lot of really
0: interesting Take, so I'll kind of highlight a few um, since there's so many, but we have one company called Biobot, um, and they were basically using collecting data and commercializing it, um, specifically from sewage water. Um, it's a really cool team out of MIT Harvard, um, a bunch of PhDs. Um, and then now they're so traditionally their use case has been for helping to solve or track the opioid crisis. And obviously tracking is the first step and hopefully solving that, but then now they're temporarily pivoting to, um, temporarily pivoting to um, tracking COVID. Um, And so they're able to use sewage water since obviously tests are really not broadly available and probably won't be for a while, but they're using um, these tests um, or these tests they usually use for opioid to pivot to tracking COVID. And so that's quite interesting Um, And then also we have a company called Enokia, which is building, um, outside of COVID, is building um, autonomous checkouts um, for physical stores, Um, but then now they're using their technology to do contact tracing, and so they're looking to deploy into warehouses and fulfillment centers um, to track kind of where employees have touched or not touched or gone or not gone um, after, you know, say one of them is diagnosed or comes out as COVID positive. Um, and then we also have um, a company called Endyme, which sort of does FDA compliance as a service in some ways, so really helping startups um, doing impactful work to um, be able to go through FDA clearance more quickly and more efficiently. And so part of it is a tech solution, part of it is sort of this consulting service, and part of it is a community with content as well. And so um, they're kind of pivoting specifically to um, focus a lot on drugs companies that are helping with testing or even with um, vaccines or treatments of covid and i'm kind of giving them s- some more um some better access and some more um premier access to the community and so those are some examples just quite um quite interesting but then i guess on the next point um so pitching virtually versus in person so kind of shifting gears a little yeah. bit and um, so obviously now is meeting in person and lucky if you know you were able to build a relationship with a VC before this all happened and sort of just keep up keep up with them or or keep in touch um through zoom or through phone um but then obviously some people are not so lucky and didn't get the timing right and um so I think kind of you sort of need to maybe back channel to see what funds um, are zoom friendly because I do know some funds out there who have made investments purely through virtual interactions and then actually one of the funds I've spoken with they're like a very old fund one of my friends works there I think they've been around for decades um but then they or, or you know at least a decade but they just last week um made their first investment and they write larger checks so it's you know no small deal um into a company that they only do virtually and so I think that was really interesting I think even if, com- even if firms traditionally weren't so accustomed to this type of Um, you know, interaction, virtual interaction with entrepreneurs, they are becoming very quickly more comfortable with it. And so I think um, firms might initially be like, you know, that's quite strange, but then they'll definitely come around to it and sort of adapt to the times. I mean, after all, VCs work with startups, adapting all the time and are quite adaptive, hopefully themselves um, in the medium term. Um, but then I think also what's helpful is just bringing on more members of your team because I think the main thing that VCs want to grasp from going to your office or you know, having those in-person meetings is to see what kind of culture you're forming when they visit your office or what kind of culture you're able to form when they sort of see you live and like you know, see how you are as a person, as a leader, you know, hopefully as a salesperson, charismatic person. Um, and so I think whatever you can do to sort of showcase that um, by, you know, bringing on more members to your team, especially kind of like head of sales or head of marketing, people who are more customer facing um, is really helpful. And then also sort of providing references for them on people who you've led, um, you know, you if you're the founder. Um, I think that's quite helpful. But I think what's important is to know it's not just some kind of like Weird rule that VCs have they're like, oh, I just, you know, feeling like I need to see this person in person. I mean, obviously, there is some kind of instinct in, in and gut aspect of it, but I think it really is towards this larger end of seeing what kind of culture this company has and what kind of culture the CEO is able to create. And if you're able to show that to them through alternative, non in person means, as we all have to now, um, I think that's kind of the ultimate goal. It's not so much to see someone for the sake of seeing them, but it's to see someone for the sake of understanding. Um, that culture. So I think that's quite important. Um, And then the next point on conserving cash and um reducing burn so obviously this is really the main focus of companies right now this is like you know all year long you track different kpis but this is really your run rate um your monthly burn um is really kind of what you should be tracking most and i'm sure almost all startups are doing that and if not their investors are probably handing them to do so and provide more color on that but i think in general obviously none of us really knows how long quarantine will last and even um, you know after quarantine is over kind of like what that means are we going to sort of gradually reintegrate like Germany is doing Um, you know what sort of um, criteria is that going to be based upon and obviously who knows who has the antibodies and who doesn't many of us might have them and we don't know or some of us and we don't actually and so I think there's a lot of question marks um, around different aspects of the future so I think to be safe um, generally as a seed stage company um, and you know obviously I, I am focused on the seed stage of my work and so I'm most familiar with that um, but um, in, as a seed stage company I think you want to make sure if possible and obviously you know no need to freak out if you don't but I think um, it is you know generally ideal to have around two years worth of runway But I think kind of the real problematic area is if you need to raise in like the next two quarters in the next six months. Um, I think that's kind of you know again not like a you know die dying issue. Really, obviously, a lot of companies can survive um, and you know find a way to sort of scrape the funds together. And lots of these are still looking at seed extensions, seed plus rounds, bridge rounds, whatever you want to call it. um, That's really attractive, and so. Um, So, yeah, so I think kind of um, what's important there is to um, find, you know, obviously ways to reduce burn if you're able to um, renegotiate contracts to pay over a longer period of time um, or if you're able to um, or if you're able to even pay in like non-cash ways, um, you know, credits or something like that, um, then that's quite helpful as well. Um, and I think also just kind of thinking about um, connecting with investors early on to kind of build that relationship um, in case they want to participate in a seed plus or bridge run that you're going to do in the next Like quarter or so, or next two quarters, and raising as soon as possible when you're not in dire dire need of the money. Um, And so, I think that um, kind of those are sort of things to think about in terms of kind of surviving all of this. So, to kind of summarize, since that was quite a lot of information, try to have at least two years of runway, um, and that could come in the form of raising more money or just reducing burn. Um, so that you're able to you know work with whatever capital you have for longer um, and then also um, try to you know, renegotiate contracts or pay in non-cash ways if possible um, and that's you know perhaps more of an eq and relationship oriented thing of like building and cultivating and leveraging relationships you have with suppliers or other people you potentially owe money to um just so a quick that. question okay, and... on that
1: with quick question yeah. non-cash, just to clarify. When you mean non-cash, is it like um like an inventory or it's just like like assets that you have that you can kind of use as collateral? Or I just want to clarify that um, what do you mean by non-cash? Non-cash. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so non-collateral Yeah. Collateral, definitely. Or if you're able to, um, like even work out like a creative contract, like, oh, I'll give you this, like, um, and maybe, maybe, like, I can't think of like a perfect example right now, but maybe, um, this company, um, may need. Um, this company the supplier may need something and then you're able to get that for them through your network Like maybe the supply I'm just making this up as it goes on you know a Real example though it might be but maybe the supplier like needs access to a warehouse and then your um, You know friend like owns a warehouse or something um, And so I think that that could be um, you know an example of like and then they'll perhaps like delay your payment or give you a discount or something Like that if, if that makes sense That
1: makes sense that makes sense thanks pretty
0: cool cool yeah so just to wrap things up i'll kind of give some historical precedents. yeah um so kind of find some um, just to make sure i'm kind of pulling up the the right information around this um
1: I mean, going
0: back to 08 oh yeah. yeah, So I think also like kind of looking at World War II, for example. yeah, oh, yeah. Um, you know, an time in many ways. But um, it actually was a really great period of innovation. So just to name a couple of things that were um created during that time includes yeah. like Ray Bans, um, Jeeps, super glue, Fanta, mm-hmm. nuclear power. Walkies, um, duct tape, jet engines, ballpoint pens, penicillin, redrying um, the computer, which is initially used to crack encryption,
1: wow.
0: um, radar technology, microwave ovens, um, and rocket engines. Um, and so that's quite interesting. And then another interesting period is obviously a little bit later. I'll just go kind of chronologically. Another interesting period is the dot-com bubble, <laughs> um, which is obviously early 2000s, late um, 1990s. Um, and so a lot of the companies that sort of survived this period and, and obviously had a rocky time as to the rest of the market um, include Google, Amazon, Netflix, eBay, Priceline, Yahoo, Alibaba, Line, Baidu, um, MercadoLibre, Salesforce, and Yandex, among many others. And so I think that's quite interesting. And um, then obviously the most recent one, 2008, a lot of um, really prominent companies raised their seed or series a rounds around that time so to name a few dropbox raised their series a then twilio raised their seed airbnb raised their seed uber raised their seed square raised their series a and then Stripe raised their seed round then as well and obviously all of these are huge companies now and so um i think just to kind of put things in perspective i guess another Silver lining to really close on um, is that um, you know historically we've seen a lot of noise in like the VC markets and obviously it's not you know anyone's fault it's definitely a confluence of lots of different factors but I think as a result um, you've seen a lot of people go into entrepreneurship not for the right reasons per se which is which is fine as well because obviously a lot to want in life but they you know might go in just for the money or just for the outcome and so they're less process oriented and more outcome oriented and i think in order to be a really good founder you need to be very process oriented and not outcome oriented because you're building this very long-term business it's not going to be a return that's going to materialize immediately actually immediately there's going to be a lot of pain and a lot of trouble and um, issues and challenges many of which are unexpected um, and so i think in the short term there's going to be um, short and medium term for founders. There's a lot of um, you know difficulty, and they need to sort of be um, enjoying the process and enjoying that journey more than trying to get some kind of immediate you know capital or, or fame or brand return. And so, um, I think when bc and startups were a super glamorous time i guess between the recession and now um there's been a ton of people going into entrepreneurship obviously a lot of them for the right reasons but perhaps some of them also not for the right reasons and so i think now that it's much harder to be an entrepreneur, you'll sort of see a lot of these companies become stress tested. Um, and so I think that um, you'll see a lot of people going into entrepreneurship for the right reasons who are fundamentally, as a result, better founders. And I think it'll be better investments for the VCs, more enjoyable experiences for these people because they you know, truly like even the hardships. Um, or kind of view them more constructively. And I think lastly, um, to really close, I think it'll also be just a really interesting opportunity to convert people into problem-solving mode versus just execution mode. Um, so I think a lot of these, you know, the whole digital revolution, everybody talks about it and we feel like it's been going on forever, but um, a lot of things haven't really been stress-tested and that's because we have been sort of a mix, living our lives, you know, whether it's work or home or every, everything in between and a mixture of all- online versus offline and so uh, I think you know things weren't really put to the test but I think now they will be um, since we're purely virtual um, for obvious reasons um, in every sense of the word and so I think we'll see lots of new technologies um, emerging during this time as you know really talented engineers and developers see problems in their own lives or the workflows of their teams Um, and so they'll kind of be inspired hopefully to solve those problems and i think that that'll be a really great experience and really great opportunity and i think you know a few years from now when obviously hopefully COVID is all done you'll see a crop of really strong entrepreneurs um, coming up go, you know taking companies public or you know huge acquisitions just building really successful rocket ship businesses very similar to sort of how you saw the shakeout from 2008 um you know in the mid. 2010s and then up to now obviously companies I just named like Dropbox and Airbnb, Stripe, um, etc. are doing very well now. So thank you so much for having me on and hope this was helpful and really looking forward to the next one which will be on Female Founders.
1: No, definitely this was great and I think a lot of people learn a lot from me. Thank you so much. This was uh, very clear. I um, had a lot of great insights so thanks for your time and
0: uh, looking yeah. forward
1: to the next one.
0: That's be looking forward to it, and I'll talk to you all soon. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you so much, Jessica. Have a great day.
0: Have a great day. Have a yeah. great weekend. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, okay. you. Thank
1: you. Bye, guys. Of
0: course. Bye. Bye.